Hello everybody, welcome back to the Eccentric CEO podcast. Today, we are going to look into the fascinating yet very opaque industry of book publishing. And to educate us, I have with me a very special guest, Tucker Max, who is a multiple-time best-selling author and the founder of Scribe Media, which I would say is one of the world's fastest-growing book publishing and media services companies. Is that a good way to ascribe it in a nutshell? It's a great way. Most people won't know what you mean, but the description is very accurate, yes. Cool. And so Tucker and I will try to peel back the curtain on the publishing landscape, the changing business models, and also how the economics of this industry has evolved over the years. Tucker, thank you so much for being on the show. Of course, thank you for having me. Cool, I think this is gonna be a dynamite of an episode. By the way, how many books has your company worked on so far? So we have published that are out in the market, I think 907. And then we have another 13 or 1400 in process right now. Wow. By the way, for those yeah. who don't know, that includes some very popular authors like David Goggins and uh, James Altucher and some other names you've probably heard of. Yep. So let's start with some history from the buyer side, right? And my purpose here is to understand where the market is going. So let's start with this. How many books are published and sold each year as of recent data? And I'm going to ask like a couple more questions in one go so that you can pick them apart as you okay. like. And the second thing is where are people buying these books? And the third one is how has that this dynamic of how many books are sold and where people are buying them, how has that changed over, let's say, the last 20 years, 15 years? So no one knows how many books are published a year. There are some guesses, but the guesses are really thrown off yep. because there's enough companies or people that are essentially creating these weird algorithmically compiled books and putting them on Amazon to sell. So like Amazon might tell you there's 5 million books published this year. 5 million people did not write books. Like mm. it's something like half a million. 90% of those books are written by AIs, right? Or not even a, true AIs, but just crappy bots. So no one knows. It's well into the hundreds of thousands worldwide. Yeah. It might be into the millions, although I doubt it. I'm talking about books written by actual people, right? Mm -hmm. I can tell you though, you can take an industry like lawyers that's fairly regulated and well-known. And you can look at, okay, how many lawyers are there? And you can get a rough estimate in America. Yeah. And how many of those lawyers have, you can cross-reference that with how, like Amazon, see how many have written books, right? Yeah. And almost any profession you look at, the number of people in the profession who've written a book is well under 1%. Mm. It's almost always the minority. In fact, it is. I don't think there's any profession where it's the majority, I guess, unless the profession would be writers. But even there, tons of writers don't actually write their own books, right? They do journals or journalism or whatever. So even there, it's probably not the majority. So not many people, the honest truth. Now, how have books changed? Well, obviously, ebooks are only about 25. In the current iteration, as we understand them, mm -hmm. they're about 25-ish years old. Yeah. 
Kindles, Amazon, which is the big player in, in eBooks, is less than 20 years old. And so like, as we understand digital media, it's a very, very young industry, very immature industry in a lot of ways, right? Now, I'll tell you what's crazy, though, because bookstores, you know, it used to be physical books in bookstores, and mm-hmm. audiobooks were maybe 5% of that, and digital books didn't exist. Yeah. And in less than 20 years, physical books in bookstores are under 20% of sales, and then physical book sales overall are probably less than 30% of sales. And the rest is either ebook or audiobook. So audiobooks have blown up in the last five years. Uh, I'll give you a really good example. David Goggins, who you talked about, yeah. has sold a huge percentage of his books on audio. Like it used to be audio was minor, maybe 10% of sales. Now it's ranging from 30 to 60% of sales, depending on the author. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a huge percentage. And then ebooks are fairly consistent. Generally, Physical and ebook are somewhere between 20 and 30%, depending on the genre, the author, various factors. And what that's done is essentially it has eliminated the need for, for gatekeepers, right? So it used mm-hmm. to be, it's funny, it used to be there's maybe 100,000 books published a year, and now it's, it might be 5 million, right? Mm-hmm. But if you take out all the algorithmically generated books and talk about actual books actual people are reading or writing, you know, it went from, a, let's say, 100,000 or 50,000 a year to maybe 250,000. So we went way, way up. But what's crazy about it is that I don't think it's even begun still. We're like 20 years into this massive shift in publishing. And I still don't think we're even past the, we're maybe past the very beginning stages. And that's about it. I think this is a whole fundamental tectonic shift in this business. And then this business is part of a larger set of shifts, right? Does that answer your question? Yeah, and so that's one part, like how many books are being published? Yeah, we don't know, but it's well under 1% of professionals who are publishing books, right? What about book sales numbers? We kind of touched on that, like print books, less than 20, 30%, audiobooks and eBooks, the rest, 70%, right? And people are also buying these books online on Amazon and, and whatnot. So let me ask you a different question. And this is going to be a really weird question. So brace for that. As I look at the book landscape, specifically, I sometimes look at China, right? What's happening there is pretty innovative, where you have these interesting new ways of packaging the book, like people are paying by the word or by chapter or stuff like that, and all these things are happening. And we're also living at a time where everybody with a website has a downloadable PDF or some form of package written content that they're selling as an information product, right? What is a book? How do you categorize books as of today? Besides like the traditional meaning that we can all imagine what a book is, right? How do you categorize or classify books? And how do you distinguish them from packaged written form of content? Honestly, man, every label is uh, false and artificial, right? Like it's all made up. Yeah. You can argue and debate all day whether something's a book or not a book, right? Like, like, you know, you can argue all day whether a hamburger is a sandwich or not. Yeah. In a lot of ways, it doesn't matter. But that being said, I'll tell you what my idea of a book is. One big idea or set of ideas that are all interrelated, fully expressed and explored in a specific bounded container. Yeah. And that's a pretty broad definition. It encompasses audiobooks, ebooks, physical books. But I think looking at the medium of delivery is not all that useful. 
it is in a world that is only physical. You don't live in an only physical world anymore. I mean, arguably, we never did, but at least it was very heavily physical. That world's gone, right? And so in a world where the digital world is predominant, then looking at a book as a physical thing doesn't make any sense. It is yeah. A book is a set of ideas fully explored, which is why you can have 50-page books that are fantastic and comprehensive, mm-hmm. right? And 500-page books that aren't long enough. Yeah. And regardless of, of the format, you know? And so the other thing I would say is single idea or set of ideas fully explored is in text, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I get like audiobooks are different. It's not fully in text, but it's deriving from a primary source of text, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to tell you straight up, I'm in the book publishing business. Yeah. I don't think this business is long. It is, the future is not in text. The future is in audio video. I don't think text is going away. I think I didn't answer that you kind of asked is book sales. Yeah. So book sales have steadily, in, in terms of total number of books sold across all formats, has steadily gone up and it's, it keeps going up. It's not mm-hmm. going down. And so people want to learn. People want to know stuff. People want to be entertained. That's going to happen and that's going to keep going. The only question now is what form do people take it in? What yeah. form of media? Books are great, but most of the content I'm making now is video first. Books are still there. Books are an important supplement. I read books. A lot of people read books. Mm-hmm. Books are all, crucial in a lot of ways, but I don't think they're the primary form that people are going to be consuming stuff in the future. It, we just went through a weird period of maybe 100, 200 years where books just were a dominant cultural force mm-hmm. because of some weird accidents of history. But now that people can easily create and share audio video and it already is the primary form of communication now digitally like it's long surpassed books books are an adjunct to that which is fine like that's just it just is what it is it's not a good or a bad thing it's just where we are yeah yeah that makes sense i mean the world's always changing and information is always being packaged right you have blogs some people are writing blogs which have like tens of thousands of words in one article online and like you said you have like 50 page books which are really good as well and people are paying for them in different ways okay so and we looked at you know in terms of sales like the traditional concept of a book whether it's digital or physical it's still growing at a huge pace but you feel like the other forms of content of packaging that information from a sales standpoint like from the concept of a set of ideas fully explored like a pdf or you know something that's not that people don't call a book is kind of taking over the traditional book format model? It depends what we're talking about. So my company, Scribe Media, yeah. I wrote a book with my co-founder called The Scribe Method. Yeah. It's 530 pages or something. like It's a huge book. Mm-hmm. And it describes our entire process. Yeah. Everything we do to take someone from their idea to a fully written and published book. And you would think like that would be a terrible, like who wants to read 500 pages on how to write a book? And it's actually one of the best things we've ever done for sales for two reasons. One, because it's proof that we can create a book that's amazing, right? And you don't actually have to read it. It's just like, oh, they have a huge book on how to write a book and it's really good. That just by itself is a signifier. But listen, a lot of people, honestly, will judge you by your book without ever reading it. That is just the truth, right? Mm. Because of that, some companies will tell you, oh, it doesn't matter what's in your book. That's wrong. That's a terrible way to approach it because what's in the book really does matter. 
if for no other reason it matters to you. But I mean, I'll look up, I wrote a 550 page book. We don't, very few people who are thinking of working with us read it, but about 10% do. And I mean like rich, wealthy people who like don't have to do this. Yeah. Because if, you, if you're a client of us, you're paying us so you don't have to read the book. We're doing it for you, right? Yeah. But they'll read it anyway. Why? Because so many people are so used to being lied to and manipulated by sales materials mm. that we've put out this massive document that tells you exactly what we do so you can judge for yourself. Read what we do and see if it makes sense to you. Mm. See if you like it. See if you agree with it. All that sort of stuff. And so it's ended up being an amazing sales tool for us because people now real, it's a signal of credibility. It's a signal of, a, of ability. And it's a signal of belief. We believe in our process so much so we're willing to show the whole thing to you and let you judge us. And mm. almost no one else does that, right? Yeah. And so like, it's an amazing sales tool. Now, if the only thing we had done was that book, that wouldn't be the great sales tool, right? Like, it'd be fine, but I don't think for most people, there's such thing as, okay, here's the one thing we do for sales. Yeah. Maybe. There are some, right? But you usually have to do a lot of different things. And a book is, a, a, to us and to a lot of people of our clients, it's a very important part of the sales process. It's not the only part. So don't look at anything as the only part. Mm. When someone gets on the phone with us, like we have you know, a sales team that's amazing. By the time they get on the phone with our sales team, usually they've invested dozens of hours in learning about us and about books. Yeah. And they've had multiple touch points with us. So you have to understand like, oh, okay, we have tons of video out there, videos of us, videos of our clients. We have all kinds of stuff. Because the people are trying to answer the question for themselves, is this going to help me get what I want? And so for a lot of people, a book helps them show other people, yes, me or my service have what you're looking for or what you want. But it's not the be all end all for anything. I see. Makes sense. I think what Tucker is trying to encapsulate in that is that a book as a package for certain ideas or knowledge is not just something that people read for, you know, just for sake of knowledge. It's also something that people are consuming as a credibility tool. So it's kind of like it has a, a multidimensional purpose now than before where you write a book like a textbook, like, okay, you know, people are going to buy the book, they're going to read the book, and that's it, job done right there. So it's kind of like one more kind of content marketing, to put it that way. The next thing is I want to now get into the publishing side. It's into two parts. The first one is the concept of a publishing house, right? Who their customers are, who do they serve? And what do their customers get from them and what role authors play? And the second part is dissecting a traditional book deal or the concept of a book deal, right? So how about this? Let's start with a really quick summary of, in your mind, what is a book publisher, right? What's their business? So it depends because there's a lot of different ways to be a book publisher, mm -hmm. right? So for example, at Scribe Media, we're a publisher, but you pay, we're a service-based publisher right? So you pay us a fee and then we have very high level professional publishing services and we publish your book, yeah. right? But you own the book and you make all of the money off the book. So it's an investment only in yourself, right? And we, we're just facilitating that work. Yeah. Whereas we also own a traditional, what's called the traditional publisher or a publishing house. The company that we own is called Libra Press. 
So we have two, we have Scribe, which is a publishing services company, and then we have Libre Press, which is a traditional publisher. The other traditional publishers, the big ones that you know of are like Simon & Schuster, HarperCollins, Random House, Penguin, those people, yeah. right? So they're almost like a venture capital company, right? Yeah. They are putting up money. They're paying usually in advance to the author, meaning they give them a little bit of money, and then they are paying for the production of the book. Mm-hmm. And they're betting that the book is going to sell a lot of copies. And so what they do is they take a bunch of the money of the royalties. So a traditional publisher generally takes 85 to 93% of the royalties of a book. Mm -hmm. And the author gets, you know, 15 to 7.5%. Now, they justify that for a lot of reasons. But the main one is, is they're investing a lot of money up front in the thing. Now, it used to be before digital media that split made sense because there weren't a lot of publishing houses. It was very expensive to publish books. And so, you know, like a venture capital firm, you only need one or two huge companies to return the whole fund. Yeah, Publishing worked on the same model is that they would bet on a hundred authors. And if five of them had big hits or two of them had massive hits and maybe five had mid-level hits, then it paid for all hundred. Well, that doesn't work anymore for a lot of different reasons. But what the big publishing houses now really only exist anymore because of their backlist, because of like To Kill a Mockingbird or Harry mm-hmm. Potter or all the books that have been, that have hits in the past that are still hits, those pay for everything. I see what you mean. But they can't afford anymore to bet on 100 authors for a lot of different reasons, but mainly because they're too bloated as companies, just straight up. They're too big and bloated and full of nonsense. And so what's happened is it made room for companies like Scribe Media right, which is mine, or other smaller publishers to do kind of hybrid stuff, hybrid deals, where they give, like my traditional publisher that I own is called Libra Press, we give authors 50-50 deals. So they get 50% of what the book makes, which is way better than traditional 15, right? The reason we can do this is that we don't pay advances, no money up front, and we have a really small team, so we have almost no overhead costs. Whereas like Simon & Schuster has like 20 floors in a Manhattan skyscraper. So they're like overhead is off the charts, right? So they can't do that. They can't move. They're not nimble anymore. Now, why would an author want traditional? Well, it used to be that traditional invested a lot in marketing. They invested in you as an author. They tried to develop you all. They don't do any of that anymore. They're basically a dead business model that's trading on the reputation and status it used to have. And it's squeezing that market as much as possible until it's dead, which is great for me. Because me and my partners have created the next generation of businesses, and as they shrink, we grow. You know, and just like in 20 years, something will come along and replace us, and either we'll start the thing that replaces us, or or whoever does will beat us, right? Mm -hmm. That's all, all cycles always work in business. And so old traditional is on its way down, and this new system is on its way up. Okay. So why is the distribution? They have the distribution channels, right? I mean, okay, their distribution was traditionally bookstores, and bookstores are dying. That's one. Mm-hmm. Number two, they have a lot of overhead. You know, they thought that all the books will be published through them and turns out they're not anymore because mm-hmm. people realize that a book publishing company, a traditional book publisher is kind of like a marketing agency plus investor yep. or a bank loan. Like, I don't know, investors more like more than, you know, more than credit, right? Because they're actually giving you money. And if your book doesn't sell, like they lose that money, right? So the marketing agency part, which you don't need a huge skyscraper marketing agency for your book, you can go to much many more players in the internet marketing field to get the word out there. That's number one. 
And then the distribution is like pretty much like, yeah, anybody can go on Amazon or any of these websites and publish whatever they want. So these are the two forces in summary, which are driving the change in the publishing model, right? Yep. What does today, when you look at a publishing deal that you do at your press, right? What is the anatomy of that? Basically, more than the anatomy, what factors does it depend on the type of deal that you give them? Yeah, so we don't pay advances. So the books are very low risk for us. There's little upfront money. Okay. We handle all the publishing costs, right? We put those up. And then we have full distribution too. So like an author who comes with us doesn't get an advance, but they get 50% of ownership of the book instead of 15. So it's authors who want to bet on themselves go with Libra Press, right? Mm -hmm. And then the other thing we do is that the traditional don't do is that we actually put money into marketing, right? And we actually, we can do real marketing because old like HarperCollins doesn't know how to market books, which sounds crazy, right? I'll tell you why. Because for 100 years, they didn't actually sell books to readers. They sold books to bookstores who sold books to readers. Mm -hmm. So they were like almost like a B2B company. They weren't actually a B2C company. So we've started our traditional publisher as a B2C company. But here's the the difference, though. They look for books they think are going to sell. We don't. We look for books that already have an existing audience waiting to buy them. Mm. Right? So like we partner with authors who either have written books before and have proven they can sell. And so it's like, oh yeah, this person's already sold a million books. They're going to probably sell more. Or someone, if they haven't sold books before, or if they have not written a book before, they have a big audience of people who are waiting to buy their book. So basically, we look for extremely low-risk, high-upside opportunities. Mm -hmm. You could almost not even tell us what the book's about. This is not literal, but almost. We evaluate the books almost totally on sales potential, not content. That's not literally true. It's probably 80% sales potential, 20% content. Traditional publishers like to pretend they're the other way around. 80% content, 20% sales. And that used to be true. Mm -hmm. It's not true anymore. Now they're mostly sales, but they don't know how to evaluate sales potential. Like we do. They don't. Mm-hmm. Right. And so like they're trying to do something they're not good at, whereas we built the whole company around that. Interesting. Yeah. And I, I I have heard some instances where people would say that, oh, a big traditional publisher wouldn't even look at you unless you have an agent and an email list. Well, it's true now. They won't look at you now unless you have an agent. And that was true then. That's been true for 100 years, because what big publishers do is they use the agents as essentially their filtering mechanism. So like that used to work really, really well. It doesn't work very well anymore because neither agents, agents have a better feel for what's going to sell than publishing companies, but neither of them really have a good feel at all because neither of them are actually looking at the data and neither of them are actually looking at what's working or what's not working. They all fall victim to basically like survivorship bias, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, oh, here's the thing selling in the market now. Give us more of those. That's never how you find huge books. You don't rarely do you find huge books by imitating what's out there. You find huge books by figuring out what a bunch of people already want. And so like, that's what we do is we, we're not trying to guess what people want. We're looking, if someone has a huge email list, if they have 500,000 or a million people who've signed up for the email list based just off their Instagram feed of smart quotes. Okay. That those people are probably going to buy a book on quotes. Yeah. And it's not like traditional publishing has no idea that this works. They do. They just don't know how to do it. Like McDonald's, 
you know, everyone wants healthy stuff. And McDonald's tries sometimes, they, you know, they go with their salad thing. They always are trying to do healthy stuff and it never works, right? Because mm -hmm. they don't know how to do healthy things. The entire DNA of the organization is based around tasty, cheap, and fast, not healthy. Mm -hmm. So like entirely different companies have to be built around healthy because it's a different culture and it's a different mindset. Yeah. So it sounds like in a way, the main thing that we're focusing on here is that marketing is really the key driver, right? Who can market the book better and who has the operational capacity to market enough books to make up for the risk they take? Sort of. It's not who can market the book better. It's what book is going to sell the best. Because I'll tell you, that's the step people don't get. It's like, oh yeah, let's just build the book marketing machine. It's almost impossible to yeah. do that. No one's ever been able to do that. No one. The people who look like good book marketers, what they do is they write books people want to read. Yeah, yeah. That's the difference. Because so many, the way people think of marketing is, how do I sell this shit? Mm. That doesn't work with books. Yeah, yeah. Especially books. Because the only way books sell is word of mouth. And so trying to pass off a shitty book as good, I've never seen it work. Because people don't lie to their friends about that stuff, right? And so, whereas like, you know, cars, all kinds of other stuff, you can sell garbage if you run the right campaign. Yeah, it's yeah. almost impossible to run campaigns for books. Mm, I see what you mean. Okay. So in a sense, you know, we, we talked about like, okay, if you're a traditional publisher, they were like a venture capitalist, right? Uh -huh. Based on the content, they would make a call. Is this going to hit us big or not? And then the other side is now, I think it's kind of converging where they also want you to have an email list. But for the sake of the argument, now you have also this other faction like yours where you serve authors who already have a list, who already have sales potential, who already have, in a way, distribution, right? Right. So let's talk about self-publishing as an industry, right? Let's say an author like Tim Ferriss, before he had an email list, before his first book came out, and he was sending his book off to all these publishers and was getting rejected by a few. And, and then he figured out he got accepted by one who took a chance on him. And then he basically did, he hustled the whole marketing himself for his book. Mm -hmm. I know. I actually hel I helped him do the marketing for our work week. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Where do those authors sit in this dynamic that we just described? What authors specifically? Do so you for mean? example, so you don't give an advance to authors, right? Depending on, okay, they already have an audience, are they already an influencer? Right, so you're saying the ones who don't have a big list, yeah, right? Those who are starting out. But are going to work hard and hustle. Yeah. Yeah. I would tell them to go to Scribe Media and I would tell them to pay up front to work with pros to get the book done and own all the profit of your book. Because if you know, it, bet on yourself. If you know you can hustle and you know you can sell books or you think you can, then kill yourself to put the money up yourself so that you can own all of the upside of your book. It's sort of like a founder who started a company who knows it's going to be a hit. They want to raise the least venture capital possible. Yeah. And if they can raise none, they raise none. The only thing that messes that up a little bit is for some people, raising venture capital is a sign of status. And so it used to be traditional was a sign of status. I don't think it really is anymore. No one cares but some people still do. And so the question is, are you trying to be a success or are you trying to be high status? Because they're not the same thing. Mm, I see what you mean. So in a sense, like you can basically get there, just uh, get the book published as well as you can, invest the money, scrape the money however you can, and have somebody help you market and hustle with you. Or just publish it. Like, like just, you just need to be professionally published. Like I need to have a great book cover. It needs to be laid out well. It needs to look like it belongs. 
that's it. That's all. I mean, that which is not a small thing. Like, oh, I'll just go to Fiverr. No, you're not going to find good people to do that on Fiverr. Like, you're going to have to hire pros, and pros are expensive. But if your book looks, first of all, if it has great content that is appealing to a lot of people who are looking for help in that situation, and it looks professional, mm. and it looks good, and they understand it's for them, then you can hustle it and it can go. You know? Mm. Mm. I see. So now we'll get into one last topic that I know you really love to talk about in a way, which is getting a book on bestseller list. What are your thoughts on that? And, and, and I'm going to link to a video that you have specifically on that topic for anybody who's interested. But in a nutshell, from an economic standpoint, just for, you know, for those who want to be educated about the landscape and how it works, right? What really goes on there? Well, bestseller lists are... It depends which one you're talking about. For the most part, they're scams. Mm -hmm. If you're talking about like Amazon, well, everyone's, every author says they're an Amazon bestseller. The problem with that is it's really easy to be a bestseller in the little subcategory, right? Oh, I was the number one book for underwater basket weaving or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's like, that doesn't mean anything, mm -hmm. right? Now, Amazon does have its most bought and most read lists, which means something. Those are real numbers in Amazon. The problem yeah. is most people don't know what that means, right? And so, like, so many people have used the term Amazon bestseller that it's, like, kind of corrupted, right? So then the other major lists are Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and New York Times. Yeah. You can buy your way onto all those lists. You can't pay the newspaper. You got to pay, pay people who, like, engineer it on. Mm -hmm. I know a bunch of people who've paid their way onto the, all three lists. Wow. And, like, there's two reasons to do that. One is ego. It just straight up. I want to feel like I'm important and significant because my book was a bestseller. Yeah. Right? Okay, fine. If that's worth a quarter million dollars to you, then go go do it. The other reason, the other theory is, well, if I'm a best-selling author, I'll get more of X or Y. Yeah. Right? That can happen. I mean, it's not impossible. It has happened. It can happen. And if you look at it like an investment that like having a title is going to or some signifier of something is going to help you, okay, then go do it, right? But for the most part, most of those lists are, at this point, really just not that credible anymore. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying this to someone who's a four-time New York Times bestselling author, like an actual one who got on organically, and I never paid to be on any list. I just sold a ton of books. Yeah. And so it's like, it's kind of crappy that those lists are like, don't mean much anymore. But on the other hand, you know what? I'm fine with it because... I sold the books. That's what matters, right? Yeah. The rest of the stuff, whatever. And so the other aspect of this, because we've been mainly talking about nonfiction books, right? Without specifically saying that. From a fiction standpoint, is this whole landscape that we just described, how much does it differ for fiction books? Fiction is totally different. Fiction is so different from nonfiction as to almost be completely different mediums. Mm. Like the only reason people put them together is because they're both printed on dead trees. Exactly. But the fiction readers, there is some overlap with nonfiction, of course, but predominantly nonfiction readers are almost a completely different group than predominantly fiction readers. And then the authors almost don't overlap at all. And the way you sell the books has almost no overlap. And the bestseller list is almost like the way you get on them is almost totally different. And they are completely different universes. Totally. Like in all ways. Right. I'm only talking about nonfiction. Anything I've said about books, ignore for fiction. Mm. Let's get a little bit more granular just so people have a little more of an understanding. Can you give some examples of how certain economical things or the publishing model or the book deals, 
how that differs very starkly between fiction and nonfiction? Oh, man. Okay, so you can get nonfiction book deals still. It's basically impossible to get fiction deals unless you start. At this point, to get a fiction deal, you have to self-publish your fiction. It's got to sell a ton, and then traditional publishers will take you, which doesn't make any sense because why would someone who's making a bunch of money that they self-publish go to traditional? Some still do, but not many. For the most part, a huge chunk of fiction has moved to self-publishing now, right? Mm. If you're a novelist, a fiction writer, that's your job. That's the only thing you do. You write fiction. Most of the people who write nonfiction are not writers for a living. It's very, in fact, it's a tiny minority. It's under probably 2% Mm -hmm. of people. Like most people who write nonfiction books do other things. They're writing the nonfiction books to share their knowledge. No one's writing novels to share their knowledge. I mean, they might share knowledge in the novel, but that's not why. Like if you're George R.R. Martin, that's all you are. Yeah. That's all you do. That's your thing, right? Mm -hmm. What else? How you sell them. Totally different, man. Like it's. It's so different. It's crazy. It's like the difference between a restaurant and a grocery store. I mean, there's no, yeah, they both deal with food, but it's no overlap between them. Mm. Like in fiction, I don't even know how to sell fiction because I don't, I don't, (laughs) no, seriously, it's, imagine I'm like a master chef and you're asking me how to market a grocery store chain. I don't know. Yeah. I know how to market restaurants, right? Which is like, oh, but they're both in the food business. They have nothing to do with each other, Mm. right? Like it's so, I don't. I hardly even know any novelists, man. That's how different that world is. It's so different. <laughs> yeah, because there's also this other side of fiction, right? Where they think, oh, I'm going to sell movie rights and that, and I'm going to have a, a media, like J.K. Rowling, for example. Everybody wants to be J.K. Rowling, where their fiction novel is going to be the next Harry Potter or the next Fifty Shades or Twilight yeah. or something like that, right? Yeah. No, that doesn't happen. Now, look, <laughs> of course. You know what's funny? I... I know a few novelists, not many, but a few. And I know a novelist who sold, I'm not kidding, 20 or 30 million novels and is virtually unknown outside of his genre. Like he writes military historical fiction okay, about like Roman times. (laughs) And I know people who do nothing but read novels and have never heard of this dude ever. And I'm like, I'm a big name nonfiction writer and I've sold 10% of what he's sold. Yeah, that's so way less. Like that's it's such a weird market and totally different, man. And it's so stovepiped. If you read, you know, vampire novels, that's all you read. Maybe you also read one other genre, but like people stick to their genres and they don't it's it's so different. Like in cars, truck people are truck people and minivan people are minivan people and they they normally they're not overlapping, right? Same thing. One consistent theme that I've seen based on my research is Fiction books outsell nonfiction books just yes. completely, like dominate drastically, right? Yes. The list of all best-selling books, except for the Bible, which I don't know if that fiction or nonfiction, but we're not going to talk about that. You know, maybe two out of fifty or hundred books on the best-selling books of all time are like nonfiction. Yes, hundred percent. So, from the marketing standpoint, like in general, most mainstream audiences are reading fiction. They're not reading nonfiction. So is nonfiction itself, like, would you say it's a niche or would you say it's a different market? It's a different product. I mean, everything's a niche. And it's kind of repeating the same. Yeah. yeah. In a sense, everything's a niche. But yeah, there is a perspective from which you could see nonfiction as just a genre of books and a mm-hmm. small genre. I don't think it really makes sense just because it's its own ecosystem, mm-hmm. right? You know what's funny is 
I would actually bet, I haven't looked at the numbers, the ecosystem of nonfiction is actually bigger than the ecosystem of fiction because nonfiction includes academic publishing, mm. trade journals. It's a huge business, mm. but it's sort of like fiction. Fiction is 50 different genres all roped together, very few of which overlap. Same with nonfiction, right? I mean, it's a multi 10 figure, it might be an 11 figure business. Like, in fact, I know it is. You wrote pull in academic publishing, you're now in the hundreds of billions of dollars for nonfiction. But it's just all these different businesses that hardly align at all, mm-hmm. you know? And most of that revenue doesn't even capture the indirect revenue or sales from no. nonfiction. What do you think is the, is the ratio? How much the books actually sell and versus how it actually gets used in business? Yeah, I don't know overall in the market, but yeah. I can tell you for our clients. Yeah, yeah. It's super, super common to see authors that make 50 times, like they'll sell 5,000 books, which is like a lot, right? Yeah. And on 5,000 books, they'll make like, I don't know, Mm $75,000. And we'll see people make not 10x, but 100x in their business. They'll make seven and a half million dollars because of their book and their business. Or way more, man. Like seven and a half is a mid-range number for us, right? I mean, we have clients who've done tens and ten, multiple dozens. We've had a couple men get into the nine figures because of their book, right? The book, oh. you know, the book helps their company scale. They sell their software company for 150 million dollars, mm, and like it. they're a huge, like, oh, the book was a huge part of that. It's not like the book and then yeah. 100 million dollars three days later. It's, yeah, yeah. But seeing people get a hundred x return on their book in the context of their career and their company is super, super normal. You just go to our website and go look at the, the success mm-hmm. stories. And there's dozens of them, man. People making well into the millions off of a book directly because it just leads off of the book. Well into the millions is like, that's like a yawn at our company now. It's just every day we have clients like that. Okay, so let's get to the end. What is Scribe's future? And by the way, in summary, Scribe is a book publishing and media services company. You help authors or would-be authors publish their book and market it or promote it. So this includes both the writing and the promotion. And from what I've heard, you're a hundred plus people or up to like, if you count like freelancers and everything, you're 300 people or something like I've heard. Yeah, if you count freelancers, we're three to 400 people, yeah. Yeah, three to 400 people. And you said about 1,500 books or so in processing at any given time? Right now, yeah, something like that. 12 to 1,300 right now or something crazy like that. Yeah, so in a sense, if I had to do simple ratios like one person to three, four, five books, let's say, right? So it's pretty operationally as well. like Pretty operationally efficient, yeah. Yeah, pretty operationally efficient. Or is that like... For somebody who's working for a year, you know, at let's say Scribe or with Scribe and then turns out three, four books, right? What is the future for Scribe? What's the goal for Scribe? Is that like scale up through people? Because it's just, it's a services company. So you kind of, the way to scale is either to expand the services while keeping the number of people growing at a much smaller rate or just keep adding people, keep scaling linearly with that. Yeah, so great question. So the, we're adding both. So we're adding people, but we're also adding service lines. And so essentially, our main client are people like you, right? Like successful, usually entrepreneurs, sometimes high-level executives, but people who want to have a brand, right? Or they they are a brand, but they want to have like a personal, professional brand. They essentially want media, right? But it's different than buying media for a company. And it's not an ad agency where you just create a campaign. Because media around a person has got to be centered around what do they know that's valuable to other people, 
right? And so how can they help other people? And so we help people understand that, put it into a book, and then help them. We're going to add on podcast. We're going to add on, you know, content mm-hmm. marketing. We're going to add on all those services. So ideally, someone like you could come to us and maybe start with a book and then stay with us for 10 or 20 years, paying us anywhere from two to 20 grand a month to run you know, some scale of media for you that's getting you five or 10 or 20x return. So almost like a marketing company for individuals is a good way to think about it, but based around books. Mm, interesting. A lot of people have this idea, this misconception that services companies don't scale, right? Either you scaled by going the way of Deloitte or KPMG mm-hmm. or the big, the big firms which have like, I don't know, like hundreds of thousands of people serving huge clients, or they think of like the web development agency down the road, which maxes out at 30 people and you can gain a lot of revenue. What I'm seeing here is it's a service company scaling with people and then adding service lines which slowly become automated. Is that the right way to put it? Like how do you expand the output of each on a per individual level at a company like this? So yes and no. Can we automate a lot of parts of the service industry? Absolutely. But there are certain things that are not automatable, like human relations, relationships. Yeah. Can't automate that, mm-hmm. right? There, you know, a certain creative genius can't automate. So how we scale is different than how we become efficient, right? And how we increase margin. The way we're going to increase margin mm-hmm. is by you're operationalizing a lot of the essentially boring, tedious administrative work. And then focus Mm -hmm. all of our money and attention on the things that are hard. Relationships, creativity. But we're still a service company, man. Like, we're probably never going to be able to do better than a 30% margin, right? Because we're competing with all these other service industries or companies for talent. So we got to pay people. And so the more talented someone becomes, the more we got to pay them. Because especially with us, in our business, there's no barrier to entry. We've had a ton of people leave our company to start their own version of what we do. None of them have been successful because it's really hard to do, but they still try, right? So if we get 25% margins, I'll be pretty happy with that. If we get 30, we're kicking ass. That'd be amazing. I'm talking about true net margins, you know? Mm -hmm. I see. And I'm glad you touched on this because it's kind of the only thing that I really envy you for is when I heard about your company culture and I read the article about somebody did like a investigative report on Stripe culture and how you hire people. But for the audience who's not really familiar with what you do, how do you hire people for a company where the real, let's say, value or the cheese of the company is in those human relationships, right? What people are really paying you for is those relationships, that one-on-one creative feedback loop, right? So which demands the highest of the, you know, the cream of the cream talent to provide that because everything else is a commodified, right? All the other, like you said, the operational efficiency things are kind of commodified. How do you scale that that hiring? It's pretty simple. It's hard to do, but it's simple to explain. Figure out exactly what type of people you need, what values they have to have, what mindset they have to have to be successful, right? Like come up with your avatars. Not any different than marketing to a customer. You figure out exactly who they need to be, understand that person, and then market your company to them. But instead of marketing for sales, you're marketing for work, right? Which is exactly what we do. We need intelligent, high responsibility people who want to work in a creative environment. And so every piece of the hiring funnel is speaking to those desires and instincts in those people. It is, 
You are marketing 100% whether you realize it or not. Well, Tucker, thank you so much for coming on to my show and sharing your wisdom with our audience. Really appreciate you. I think people will take away a lot from this episode. And thank you so much again for being here. Of course, Saman. My pleasure. Thanks, man.